Thank you so much for coming and braving the weather and the rain and spring break. We are so excited to have you guys here tonight. It is going to be a wonderful evening for us just as we continue to dive into Esther. So tonight, Rachel Smith is going to be joining us and teaching us, and it's just going to be a wonderful time for all of us to dig into the Word. So let me pray for us, and then we'll get going. Father God, we thank you so much for tonight and just the opportunity to spend time in your Word and to fellowship as women together. Lord, I pray that this would just be an evening where we would continue to grow closer to you that we would have knowledge of you that would, in turn, just grow our love for you, that we would understand that you care tremendously about the details of each one of our lives, and that you will never leave us or forsake us. So, God, I pray for Rachel as she comes, that you would just give her peace and confidence as she shares what she has learned from you. And I say all this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, hi, my name is Rachel Smith, and I am a Thursday night Bible study leader down at the Dallas campus, and I'm so excited to be with you guys this week. Um, We are doing Exodus, and so Esther has been kind of a breath of fresh air, and has been so fun for me to learn um, this week just about what you guys have been studying, and it's been really, really fun. And I don't know about you guys, but it has personally been very challenging for me to look into this book and to look into all of the history of it and to see what it is. And it's been really incredible in my own walk with the Lord. So I'm very excited to be here with you guys. I'm excited to share what I've learned this week, and hopefully we can come together and and talk um, afterwards about what you guys are learning through Esther as well. Um, So tonight we're going to talk a little bit about where you guys are going to go this week. So we're going to talk about what you're going to learn about this week, the text that you're going to dive into this week. Um, It seems at first glance, at first reading, it seems pretty straightforward. And so I'm really excited to kind of of go over the passage, but also to go down deep into the things that that I overread the first time. Like I, I just read over them. Um, And then we're going to talk about how this stuff kind of applies to us now where we are. Um, There's got to be a message in here for us somewhere. The Lord has left this word for us to read and to study so that we can learn about him and also so that we can be used as tools for his glory in this this life that we're living now. And so we're going to go through that at the very end. And I'm I'm just so excited to be here. So I don't know about you guys, um, but when I was a kid... I didn't necessarily go through like the princess and prince charming phase. Now, I did, however, like to dress up as a princess, but I didn't like act out the fairy tale. So, true story, <clears throat> second through sixth grade, I went every year for Halloween as a princess. Now, I had reasons for that, um, but one of them was that my mom, um, in all of her motherly wisdom, bought me a tiara when I was a little kid, and I wanted to wear the tiara as much as possible, but not be scoffed at, so of course I wore it for Halloween. And then her boss also uh, provided me with a steady stream of her stiletto work heels that she was done with, and so literally, like every year Halloween, y'all, second, third, fourth, fifth, and sixth grade, five years in a row, I went as the princess. Now, my mom, we didn't have just a whole bunch of money, so my mom tried to get me to wear the same dress every year. Didn't go very well, but it was totally funny. So I didn't necessarily go through like the princess and the prince charming thing, but I definitely had a princess phase and I had this, just loved being dressed up and all of that stuff. But I remember very clearly, I think it was fifth grade, we had a new male teacher at our school and he came to me and he saw me at Halloween and he said, hey, where's your prince charming? And I was like, I don't need a prince charming. And I remember going home and talking to my mom about it. And so we were talking about it and we were dialoguing and she was like, well, why, why wouldn't you want a prince charming? Like, what's the problem with that? I'm sure she was heavily alarmed. And I said, well, 
I just, um, I was like, obviously, like, yeah, I want to get married and I want to, you know, all that stuff. But I just don't like these movies because they show the happily, but they don't ever show the ever after. And so she was like, what do you mean? They should? And I said, well, I mean, you see them get together. There's all this like fuss about them getting together, but you don't ever see what happens afterwards. There's no resolution. It's just all the buildup. And she was like, huh. And it was, so, it was just like this moment, you know, like I imagine that my mom was just like, good grief, what have I raised, you know, and she's probably a little scared. But I just remember being very, like, just so stubborn about not knowing what happened to them. So this week, what we're going to see is we're going to see the buildup, but we're also going to see Esther's ever after. That's what you're going to be reading about in this week, in this week that you're studying about. So um, when we go through, we're going to, I'm just going to recap kind of where you guys have been, and we're going to go through um, just the text now. So we start this week, or the Esther started with, in the very first chapter, I know you guys learned about this last week, so I'll go quick over this part. But there's this king, that's his name, King Ahasuerus. Um, But we know him, if you look him up in a textbook, you're going to be looking for King Xerxes. Okay, so King Xerxes is likely who this was. And King Xerxes got kind of carried away to party. And he had a little bit too much to drink. And so he goes and he has this huge party, this big banquet. And then he calls for his queen. And he says, I want you to come and show off your beauty to these. I know you guys talked about this last week. So I want you to come and show off your beauty to my, to my friends. And she's like, no. And he says, okay. So then he took away her queenship. He took away the office of queen from her. And so basically what that should have cost her was her life. Okay, she should have been killed for that because she went up against the king and he should have made a good example of her in saying, oh, no, no, you don't get to do this to me. And he should have, he should have taken her life, but he didn't. He just banished her, which is something that we're going to see kind of as um, characteristic of this king. So he banishes her and then he goes to his men and he says, hey, what should I do? I need a new queen. And they're like, hey, we have this really good idea. Let's round up all these people and we are going to have a beauty pageant. All these girls, we're going to have a beauty pageant. Whoever pleases you the most is going to be your new queen. And um, there's young ones in the room, but there, um, this would have been, so if you guys can go with me for just a second to a, a raunchy television show, a raunchy parallel that we have today in The Bachelor, this would have been an entire, however many um, young women who have never known a man before, however many there were of those in this town, this capital of Susa, they would have gone and they would have got them and they would have brought them into the king to be treated for a year of beauty treatments, which honestly doesn't sound so bad to me. And I'm like, you know what? After a whole year, I could look pretty good. All right. And like, like, let's just go. Let's just go there for a minute. All right. After an entire year, who's not going to look good? Okay. So, but anyway, so then they, these women then would go in. And if you can go with me to a, to a today parallel, um, the bachelor. Okay. So they would go in and they would have a fantasy suite night with this king. And for the king, it's night after night, after night, after night, after night, after night, after night different girl every single time. All right. Now, I don't know about you, but I find that highly offensive. This is not a Cinderella story of this woman finding her Prince Charming. This man is anything but a Prince Charming. All right. He is led by his senses. That's all that this man is. That's all that this king is. This is not a good, kind, and loving king. This is a king who is looking to fulfill his own desires. And so, um, the problem with that, that I see of just from a, if I were living in this day and age, if, if, if I were in this town, if I were in the capital of Susa and these girls were rounded up, if they were um, a, a woman and they had never known a man, so that would have been technically at this time, at this historical time, that would have been at the age of 13, they would have been rounded up and taken probably not voluntarily. 
and then they might have known him for one night and lived the rest of their life in his harem, never to have seen him again, not to know the satisfaction of having children, which is the way that their lives were validated, right? We can see that through the rest of the Bible. They would have had the rest of their lives to just be. Now, he would have provided for them. He would have kept them in his palace as part of his accessories, if you will. But it's not necessarily a happily ever after kind of story. And so what we see is that Esther, in her time, in her, in her year of preparation, she found favor with the eunuchs that were working with them, that were getting them ready to meet the king. And when she did, one of the eunuchs said, hey, when you take something in, when you go into the king, usually the girls would take something with them to kind of try to set themselves apart to please him. And whatever it was that she took in was what the eunuch told her to do. It says that she only took in what was suggested to take in. So she was going to go in for her night with the king and see if she would be good queen material. Okay? So she went in, and whatever, whatever, I don't know if it's that what she took or if it was just that she found favor, but Esther goes in. Now, I need to back up just a little bit because we need to talk about um, Mordecai. So Mordecai is um, Esther's cousin. Mordecai is a Jewish person, as is Esther. They're both Jewish people, but they're not living as Jewish people in this day and age. And we know this because it says that no one knew that they were Jewish people. If they were Jewish people, they would have been abiding by the laws of the Jewish people of that time. So they would have been celebrating feasts. They would have been sacrificing. They would have been celebrating the Sabbath. But these weren't people who were celebrating the um, that were outwardly Jewish people. So we don't necessarily know about the condition of their heart, but we know because they were able to conceal that they were Jewish that they probably weren't practicing Jewish people, if that makes sense. So I'm sorry I didn't go through Mordecai. Um, so... Esther gets taken, she goes in, she does please the the king, and then she becomes his queen. And he throws another big banquet and then a subsequent banquet after that, okay? So she is now the queen, and she's been the queen for some time um, when this next thing happens. The reason that we know that is because in Esther, chapter 2, verse 19, it says that there was another rounding up of the girls. And so she had already been queen long enough for him to lose his interest in her, so he needs to go out and get some more girls, okay? So that's how we know some time has passed. So some time has passed, and Mordecai is sitting at the city gates, and we don't know if he necessarily, like if he has business there and he's there for some reason. We don't know if he's there just to try to catch a glimpse of Esther over the walls because he's, you know, he raised her. She was an orphan. He took her in. He raised her. He cared for her welfare, and and he he wouldn't have gotten to see her. She would have had her um, access to men, all men as queen, restricted so that should she become pregnant, they could prove the, the, the lineage of the king. So she wouldn't have been able to have contact with Mordecai, even though he was family. And so he, it's very possible that he was only there just to see how she was doing, just to check on her. We're not told exactly what he was doing there. But while he's there, he hears two guards of the king make a plan to assassinate the king. So in that, he hears the plan, and he sends word to Esther that this is going to happen. Now, it's very likely that he didn't necessarily care about the king, but that he did care about Esther. And so he said, listen, this is what's going to happen. These are the people that are going to do this. I want you to know so that if you are with him when this happens, that you'll be protected, that you won't, that you won't be a part of this um, destruction that's going to come to the king. So Esther then goes and tells the king, sends word to the king. She doesn't go tell the king. She sends word to the king. The king does an investigation, finds out that it was right, has those two guards hanged, which is, I guess, fitting at that time. And then um, 
Mordecai gets record, gets the credit for that. Mordecai gets recorded in a book, and that's going to be really important for you guys next week. But Mordecai gets recorded in a book, and it says that he was the one who alerted the king. He was loyal to the king. He alerted the king that he was going to be assassinated, and then the king was spared because of that. So that's kind of up to, so now we're in chapter 3. All right, so in chapter 3, we meet Haman. Now, Haman is not a nice guy at all, okay? Haman is very, very proud. Haman is a man that gets promoted. We don't really know about him before then. We don't know why he is where, why he got promoted. We don't know what his status is that led to that. But in uh, chapter 3, verse 1, we know that Haman is an Agagite. And that's going to be really important in a minute. That's really all that we know about him. Um, and Haman... Um, because he's just been promoted, I'm sure he's trying to flaunt his power. And he says that he's issues a decree that he needs to be bowed down to the same way that they would bow down to the king. Now, this probably isn't the way that you and I think of bowing down to Jesus. Like, this isn't prostrate flat on the floor. This is just like, like this, like a curtsy kind of. Like, that's, the, that's kind of what you would do to Haman. And so he goes around and he wants, he wants people to bow to him, to show their submission to him. And here, Mordecai all of a sudden grows a backbone and says, no, I'm not going to do that. Now, I've already told you that Mordecai likely is not a practicing Jew, but at this time, the reason that he cites for why he's not going to bow down to this guy, to Haman, is because he's Jewish, which is very convenient for him, because what he says is, oh, well, I don't have to do that because I'm Jewish. I don't serve any other gods but that one, except he's really not doing anything to serve God anyway, and we'll talk about that in just a minute. So he goes, he doesn't bow down to Haman because he says that he's Jewish. Now, the important thing about Haman is that in chapter 3, verse 6, Haman goes in and says, like, he's, he is so angry at Mordecai for not bowing down to him. Like, to me, um, like, I understand, like, when my kids don't obey me, yeah, I get frustrated. But I never <clears throat> think about their destruction the way that Mordecai, or the way that Haman thinks about mor- killing Mordecai. I also don't plan to kill all of my children because my one child didn't obey them, which is exactly what Haman does. Okay, so Haman goes in and he says, Listen, it's not enough to me to just kill Mordecai. I want to kill all of his people. I want to write about his entire race. Now, the backstory here, if you guys read in the very beginning of your book, I think she goes into this for a little bit, but he's an Agagite. Now, what that likely means is that he is a descendant of King Agag, who was the king of the Amalekites. Now, the reason why that's important is because in, I think it's 1 Samuel 15, Maybe it's First Chronicles. Hold on just a second. Yep. In First uh, Samuel 15, the Israelites are told to completely annihilate the Amalekites, to kill all of the men, the women, and the children because they are a wicked and perverse generation. It's in First King 15, verses 1 through 35 is that story. And they're told to completely wipe them out. And Saul is king at this point. So it's Saul's responsibility as a Jewish, as the king of the Jewish people to completely annihilate the Amalekites. And guess what? He does, except for King Agog. A-G-A-G is his name. Now, in the meantime, Samuel finds out about it and later goes back and does destroy, does kill King Agag. But somewhere in between the time that Samuel doesn't, Samuel is disobedient to the Lord, uh, Saul, excuse me, that Saul is disobedient to the Lord and Samuel can make up for his sloppiness or his disobedience, there's a lineage that develops there. And Haman is from that lineage. Haman is an Agagite. So when Haman finds out that Mordecai is a Jewish man, he says, wait a minute, your people are responsible for the annihilation of my people. 
It's not likely that he was alive. He's at least four generations removed, but he would have heard the horror stories of them coming into his camp and killing all of the people. And he says, that's, that's your people. You did that to my people. So yes, his anger is probably more than it should be, but you can kind of understand where he's coming from and that he thinks that this Jewish people, these Jewish people are responsible for killing his entire lineage except for him. Now, it's important then too later to find out that his 10 sons are killed because they do actually get rid of um, the population for him. But that's the history there. That's why Haman is so outrageously mad. I mean, it's just, it just seems so disproportionate when you just read over it. You're like, man, like... I understand that you're mad, but he just didn't bow to you. Like, that's not really a reason to kill everybody. So Haman develops this plan to kill all of the Jews in all of the provinces in the king of Persia, which is 127 provinces, um, which it was um, almost 3 million square miles, which the United States is almost 4 million square miles. So it was a huge province stretched like, and it's kind of stretched thin. It's almost like if you went from the very um, northeast down to Arizona. Like it's just kind of really wide, widely stretched. So this is, um, this is actually, um, this kind of shows, you're going to see a better picture of this in a minute, but this kind of shows the, the picture. If you look, the area that's a little bit lighter that has the dotted border around it is the king of Persia. Or is the, uh, not king of Persia, excuse me. That's the area of Persia. So if you can go to the next picture, this is kind of where it is today. So you'll see um, down here on the very bottom left is Ethiopia. There is Egypt. It goes all north of Saudi Arabia um, into Turkey, into Azir, Iran, and almost to Afghanistan. So that's how big this area was. So Haman goes through and he says, okay, I want to wipe out all of the Jewish people. And it's funny because when he goes to the king, he says, I want to wipe out all the Jewish people. And he doesn't say it's because Mordecai didn't bow to me. He says, well, obviously, if these people won't even bow to me, then they're not going to follow any of your other orders either. And he extrapolates the extrapolation, the justification that he has to make in order to get this edict passed is, is really, it's just like Satan in the garden. It's just like the enemy in the garden. So he goes through and he says, okay, I want all these people to be killed. And so they say, and so the king literally, he doesn't consult with anybody. He's just like, yeah, just do whatever you want to. Who knows? Um, so that's what he says. So he, he decrees this edict. And so Mordecai finds out about it. And Mordecai is beyond himself. He sits in grief, uh, in grief, in uh, sackcloth and ashes. So what they would do when, when the Jewish people, it was customary for them, when they were, in, when they were grieving something, either um, they were sad about something or they were grieving the loss of something, they would literally sit in a pile of ashes with sackcloth and they would throw the ashes on themselves in their grief. You can see it really clearly in the book of Job. So that's what he did. And so uh, Esther learns that Mordecai, her cousin, is probably embarrassing himself sitting in sackcloth and ashes in, a, in the Persian land where they don't do this. And she's like, get up. Like, what are you doing? So she even sends close to him. And he's like, no, no, you have to understand. This is what's going to happen to our people. And it's all because I wouldn't bow. Like, all these people are going to die. Not only are they going to die, but in that edict that the king sends, he says, not only do I want you to kill them, I'm going to pay you per one that you kill. So they're going to get paid to kill the Jewish people in this land of Persia, this huge land. Now, when Haman um, sends the edict for the king, he goes and he casts lots. And what that means is he just basically, it's kind of equivalent, like if I were to say, okay, I'm going to go through my whole calendar all 12 months, and Lord, I want, you, I want to know what day it is that you want me to buy a new car. And so I'm going to roll a seven on the day that you want me to buy. Okay, so January 1st, roll the dice, don't get a seven. Well, you don't want me to buy a new car on January 1st. January 2nd, roll the dice. Don't get a seven. Okay, well, you don't want me to buy a new car on January 2nd. And he goes all the way through and almost to the very end of the calendar to the 12th month. And when he, when he issues the edict, I think he's in the first three months of the year. 
So there's all this time that passes between like his raging burn and he's like, oh, well, I have to wait all this time for it to happen. But there's all this buildup. So Mordecai finds out about it. It's sitting in the ashes. And then um, he goes and, tell es- goes and tells Esther. And then I think you're going to have to find out next week what Esther decides to do with such a cliffhanger. Now, there are some things that I wanted to, that I wanted to show you um, about the land of Persia and where they are and why this was so important, why this was such an important, like, I just have always looked at the Bible and thought, why is this in this section, like, right here? Why is this important in the whole scheme of the Bible? Okay, so if you can go to the next slide, this is the land of Persia I told you about, and right there in the middle is Susa. That's where they are. Okay, so this is where the edict is issued from, which kind of makes sense. It's kind of central. So all those other names then are going to be some of the bigger provinces, and then there's all these little ones. So the edict has to go from there by messenger um, to all of the The king's signet signet ring is on this edict, and so that's how they know it's from him. So it has to go by messenger to them. Now, in one of the provinces is Jerusalem. Now, why this is important? Okay, why, why does this even matter in the whole history, in the whole scheme of the Bible? Why does this even matter? Well, in Second um, Chronicles 36.23, King Cyrus tells the entire Jew- Jewish nation to go to Jerusalem. Okay, so if you can go back to that slide. So if there are Jews scattered all, along the, all in the province of the, king, in the Persian Empire, okay, they're all scattered everywhere. But they're concentrated in Jerusalem, okay? So what Haman is seeking to do is not only to get back at Mordecai, but to get back at the entire nation of Israel. He's looking to completely wipe them out. He doesn't want the Jewish people to continue after this. Now, why that's important is because God in his providence says, now wait a minute, wait just a minute. Way back in Genesis, I promised these people that they were going to be my people, that they were going to be more numerous than the stars in the sky, than the sands of the sea. And I am a God who keeps my promises. So no, Haman, your edict is not going to stand. This is not going to, be, to stand. The cool thing is that God chooses to use people like Mordecai and Esther to accomplish that plan, right? Like all these things, all these little coincidences line up. They weren't even supposed to be there. They weren't even supposed to be there. They're supposed to, Esther and Mordecai are supposed to be in Jerusalem as Jewish people. They're only there, most likely, as an act of rebellion against the Lord. All right? Then Haman isn't supposed to be there. His little family was supposed to be annihilated way before this, five generations before this. So why is he even there? Isn't it amazing how the Lord sets in motion his plan? Sometimes even in the midst and in spite of our rebellion. Isn't that so interesting? I love that about the Lord. And what I would, what I would attribute that to is God's providence. We know that Second uh, Chronicles, the entire Jewish nation was supposed to go to Jerusalem. In First Samuel, um, that we learn that King Saul was instructed to, to annihilate the Amalekites, including the person who later produced Haman. And we know that God is in the details here. And what we call this in churches is God's providence, his divine providence. And what this means is just that God has the right to govern everything with wisdom and love, and he cares for and directs all things in the universe. It is his providence. It's what we in our secular world would call fate, or what we call kismet, or what we call just coincidence or circumstance. And what we know 
because of what we see in the book of Esther is that this, none of this is by happenstance or by circumstance, that God is at work in every single thing. Um, there, there's an, a literary element. A lot of biblical scholars say that Esther is one of the, mo- the best written books of the Bible. There are so many literary elements in the book of Esther. First of all, one of the weird ones is that God is never mentioned in the whole book. Like, they never talk about God. They never talk about the Father. There's never, like, a promise. There's never God talking to any of them, which is really interesting. But one of the things is just the irony there, that Vashti, the queen who wouldn't appear before her king, um, didn't appear and lost her position. But Esther, later on, this is a spoiler alert, she does appear, and she gains position for it. There's just this reversal of this irony um, that God uses here. And there are just all these details that the Lord works out. And so what can we then learn? What do we learn now on this side of the cross, knowing kind of the end game, right? Like we know how this book, the Bible, ends. We know that there's Jesus. We know that there's redemption. We know, we know that now. So then what do we have to learn from Esther and from Mordecai and from Haman? Dirty, dirty, rotten man. All right, so... We learn a couple of things, and one of them is just that, that our posture before the Lord matters. What you guys are going to see is that Esther is going to be faced with a decision. She has claimed to be a Jew for her whole life, and now that she's queen, she's going to have to make a decision about whether or not she is going to risk everything for her Jewish heritage. She's going to have to make a really big decision, and that's next week. So you have to come back. She's going to make a huge decision. And Mordecai had to make a decision whether or not he was going to tell Esther any of the things that he told Esther. Um, Haman had to make a decision. The king had to make a decision. Our posture before the Lord matters. And our posture before the Lord matters because also um, our, our point in life matters. I think I got my slides out of order there. But so our, our posture matters before the Lord and our point, the point in life we're in. Now, I am just going to make a confession to you all. Um, I struggle. Um, I, I don't do change very well. Okay. I don't, I don't do change very well. And right now we are in kind of a transitional season in, in my family. We're moving physically. We we're doing all this transition and all this stuff. And so, um, I'm also kind of in the midst of, of a change of season. Like we're kind of done having babes. Um, and I, I kind of have to decide what I want to do with the rest of my life. And I don't do all this well, all right? So I, I, I struggle with whether or not I use the word point or season because a lot of you are going to reson- resonate more with season. But for me right now, y'all, it's a point, all right? I'm just at a point. I don't know what's going to come tomorrow, but this is my point, all right? And so I just want to encourage you guys that our posture in life matters before the Lord because in the point that I'm in, um, I struggle also with, um, with contentment. I struggle to be content in the season or in the point that I'm in, whatever it is. I don't struggle um, wanting somebody else's car or their house or their clothes, but I struggle looking at other people and thinking, gosh, they have it all together and I don't. Or they know exactly what they want to do and I don't. Or because they know exactly what they wanted to do and they've done it for their whole lives, they're further along in their journey than I am. And, and so for me, this week at Esther was really, really good. Like I needed this probably no offense, but probably more than y'all did. Um, Because I needed to be reminded that in the point that I'm in, you guys can say season if you would like to, but I'm at a point. So in the point that I'm in, my posture before the Lord matters. I can either decide to stomp my feet and say, Lord, I did not give you permission. I did not give you permission to make all of these changes and to do all of this stuff. 
Or I can come before the Lord and I can say, God, I surrender to you. I know that you have a plan. I know that just like in Esther, you had a plan. I know that your plan is, is going to happen whether or not I stomp my feet and tell you that I didn't give you permission or whether I surrender and say, Lord, I want to be a tool in your hands. I want to be used by you. I want people to know that I'm a believer, not because I stand up and, and want to snub somebody the way that Haman snubbed Mordecai. I want to, or Mordecai snubbed Haman. I want people to know that I'm a believer because even in this point, I'm being obedient to you. Even at the place I'm in in my life, people are going to know that I'm a believer. People are going to know that I depend on the Lord because I have no idea what even next week is going to hold. But I do know who holds next week, right? So what can we learn from Esther? We can learn that God is at work. No matter whether, whether we see him or not, God is at work. Whether we know what's going to happen in the next couple of weeks, God is at work. My posture matters, yes. My heart, the condition of my heart matters before the Lord because he wants to be in this with me. It's not like he's, it, it's, it's not like he's some lofty thing waiting to strike me down, says soon, you know, some lofty power waiting to strike me down as soon as my heart turns out to be wretched. It's that God is saying, listen, I just want to do this with you. I know what your tomorrow holds and I'm good and I'm trustworthy. Just like we see that God is good and trustworthy in the weeks to come in Esther. God had her exactly where he wanted her to be. Even though she wasn't supposed to be there, even though Mordecai wasn't supposed to be there, even though Haman wasn't supposed to be there, right? Like if, if everybody had been obedient to the Lord, none of them would have been there, right? But they were, and God knew exactly what he was doing. And so whatever position or point you're at, whatever season of life you're in, God has you there for a reason. And the thing, I, the thing that really resonated with me this week, probably even more so than just being content where I am and knowing that the Lord is at work, is that he was at work in Esther and Mordecai and Haman, even in the midst of their disobedience. Like we know that they're not practicing Jews or they would have been recognized as Jews, right? Like they would have been, their actions would have been their tell. But they weren't. They, they, weren't going, they weren't observing the Sabbath. They weren't observing any of the laws and regulations of their time. No one even knew that they were Jews until, until Mordecai was like, well, I'm not going to do that because I'm a Jew. And they're like, wait, what? You know? And I love that the Lord isn't, isn't held by my perfect performance in my point. It does not depend on how well I do. It just depends on him saying, I'm going to work in you. And you can either come with me willingly or you can do it the hard way, right? I, I love that. And one of the, the last thing that I was going to say is that, um, so, so if I'm Mordecai in this story, if I'm sitting there and I'm like, oh my gosh, what did I do? Like, if I hadn't said I was a Jewish person, Haman never would have gotten that mad. He never would have known and the entire fate of my people wouldn't be hanging in the balance, right? And just so you guys, just, just so, um, I don't know how many of you guys are from a, a severe, really deeply entrenched church background, but if all the Jews are wiped out, fast forward a thousand years, and we don't get Jesus, y'all. He was Jewish. So that's what's at stake here. It's a, it's a pretty big bet, okay? But if I'm Mordecai and I'm sitting there, I'm like, oh my gosh, what have I done? What have I done? 
You know, I've, I've opened Pandora's box and now the fate of my people is at risk. And what I love about the Lord is that even in the midst of that, even if I think that I have messed something up so royally that God cannot recover it, God says, no, I'm still at work just as much in your mess up as I was in your perfection. Because guess what? None of it depends on you. You get to partner with me. You get to do this with me, but it doesn't, my, my ability to carry out this plan, to keep my promises to my people does not depend on you. I choose to use you sometimes. So there's encouragement in that. Even if you think that you've gone too far or you've messed it up, it's not like, it's not like you can go so far that you wander away from God. It's not like God is, you know, happily being praised in heaven up on his, up on his throne. He's got his eyes closed and he looks down and he's like, oh, stink, I lost her. Where'd she go? Where'd she go? You know, like he's not, you know, he's not up there like, oh my gosh. He's also, the great news is that even when I do mess it up, he's also not up there waiting to just look down and just face palm because I messed it up again. His promises and his plans do not depend on me. They do not depend on me. I get to partner with him. And isn't that amazing, y'all? That he lets us see his big scheme of things. He lets us sometimes, every once in a while, just with the Lord, every once in a while, I'll be sitting in my quiet time and all of a sudden he will reveal something to me. And it's like he just allows me for just a second to kind of zoom out. And I get to see what he's doing and I'm like, whoa. Whoa. How cool is it that you use me in that way? None of this, none of this had anything to do with me. This is all your hand. I can see your providence all along the way. I can see that my posture mattered in whether or not how willingly I participated in your plan. But I can see every, at every single point that you have been faithful and that you are good. And that is what we can learn from Esther. I can't mess it up to the point where he can't recover it doesn't depend on me. My posture matters, yes, before the Lord. He wants to do this with me. He wants, he wants me to be in there with him because he cherishes our relationship. And he wants me to be a willing vessel. But y'all, I'm just not always. Remember that time when I said, I don't give you permission to do all this. Yeah, that was just yesterday. Um, so if there's anything that I can offer you tonight, it's just that the, the encouragement that God is at work even when we're rebellious, even when we don't want him to be at work, even when we don't really understand what he's doing, your posture matters, your point matters, where you are at life matters. But ultimately, his plans are going to be accomplished because he is a good God, and he made a promise, and he can't go back on his word. Let's pray. God, I thank you so much that your plans will not be thwarted by man. I thank you that we just don't have that much power. I thank you in your wisdom and in your providence that you let us sometimes work with you and that you use us and that we get the privilege of that. And God, I just ask that we wouldn't miss out on it and that we would treasure the season that we're in, knowing that you have us exactly where you wanted us for such a time as this, whether it be that we are wiping babies' bottoms all day, whether it be that we're making deals, whether it be that we're at home, or, or whether it be that we're single and we're just wondering when our prince is going to come. Lord, whatever it is, whatever season it is that we're in, you have not left us there. You have not abandoned us. You are right there in it. That we are here for such a time as this. And Lord, I ask that you would clearly reveal to us what our purpose is, what our plan is, why we're in the season that we're in so that we can find joy in it. But Lord, even if that's not something that you grant to us, Lord, I thank you that you give us the times that we're in. I thank you for the growth that you offer. I thank you that in the midst of, of rebellious hearts, 
and in the midst of everything that we are distracted by, Lord, that you are still at work. And that we don't have to wonder that when these things, when things in our life kind of line up and events in our life kind of line up, that we don't have to wonder who it is that's at work, that we know that it's you. That God, ultimately I ask that even though sometimes you let us see fun circumstances, that we would lean in to hear your voice. That we would know you better. That we would study this book, looking at it and saying, what can I learn about the God that I love today? And so as we go to our small groups, Lord, I ask that your name would be glorified. I ask that we would know more about you. I ask that we would learn about your providence. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.